And so there's two views within Christendom when it comes to evil, when it comes to the problem of suffering. The first view would say that because God has loved us so, and because God is not evil, right? He's not the author of evil. He has given humanity free will, and because of that free will, evil things occur, because God's given us free will. The other view would simply be that God is not the author of evil, but he allows evil to exist because it works through evil to glory Christ Jesus. So you have two versions here of what evil is in that sense. One is saying God wants to intervene, right? He wants to stop it, but he won't and can't because it would impact humanity's free will. Another one is saying that God allows and even ordains evils to come into our lives and then works in our lives to bring about good from that evil. And so certainly we're not going to get into the whole nature of that. That's a whole series, not just one sermon. That's a whole series we go over. What is evil? How does that relate to us? But we want to at least notice that in our church, in the Reformed position, is typically number two. Right? We don't believe that God relinquishes dominion. He relinquishes his sovereignty over evil because he's given humans the ability to make free choices. And so just to clarify that this morning as we go through this, uh, I will be looking through that lens that God has given us a God, or the Bible gives excuses us a God who is not hoping evil doesn't come into our lives, but he ordains it and then works through it once it enters our lives. And so to give you an example of that review of why we believe that, number one, Jesus' redemptive work on Calvary is magnified in a fallen world. The darkness of sin makes the light of Jesus all that more glorious. Um, and also, it's logically, it puts you in a problem as well. If I were violently attacked by a criminal, I have two options. Either God really wanted to stop it and he couldn't, or God allowed it to happen or ordained it to happen in my life and will work it out for my good in ways I cannot see. One of them is a God that is weak, right? He can't, he can't infect or impact what's happening to me. The other one is actually strong enough to use what others consider for evil and make it good. And we struggle with this. I want, to, I want to give you two examples that are within our life. Sometimes we're like the caterpillar. We're sitting on our branch eating leaves and car all of a sudden starts to turn into a chrysalis. And we're like, can you believe in a God who would allow Caro to turn to a chrysalis? Who would allow him to no longer be a caterpillar? Well, what happens with caterpillars eventually, though? They turn to butterflies, right? Um, if you know anything about the process of a caterpillar going to a butterfly, it's not a clean process. It's not a magic poof. It's the whole structure of their body is removed and returned and, and shifted around until they come out as a butterfly. And so we often sometimes forget that. We're like the caterpillars looking at eternity going, can you believe God allowed death and suffering to happen to us? I am just horrified and shocked. Careful. The butterfly is what awaits us in eternity. Something more beautiful, something more better is there. And then lastly, think about the graveyard. I think really not the last hundred years, Christianity has lost the beauty of the graveyard. Um, it's now mostly thought of as a dark place of sadness, but really it is a garden waiting to bloom for the believer. They're asleep. They're not dead. Right? The one who has no hope mourns because they have no hope. That is the final resting place. That is where that person, fate, is sealed. But for the Christian, it is merely a garden that God is going to one day raise 
his people out of, to better and more beautiful creatures. And so I like to think of history in that sense, and, and when it comes to suffering, think of it as a J and not an arc. So, so I think so often in life we think of um, the overall scheme of things as like this, right? But really if you look at the grand scheme of things, the Garden of Eden's here, the fall of humanity gets worse and worse, but then there's a moment where Jesus comes, and it surpasses even what the garden expectations were. The kingdom of God with renewed humans through the blood of Christ will be far more glorious, far more wonderful than Eden ever was possible of being. And so as we go through this this morning, we're all going to have visual memories, whether they're current or in the past, or some are going to be in the future, of times we struggle with people we don't agree with, times we struggle with people that are our enemies. And we have to figure out what do we do with our enemies and how that gives way to a heart of thanksgiving. If you'll please stand, we're going to read Romans 12, verses 14 through 21 together. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For so by doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to cover several of those verses. We're going to cover several points. They have simple theological truths, and some that have deep thinking and theological choices that we have to wade into that cause us much thought and prayer. But right off the bat, Paul puts us in a hard position. Look what he says there in 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. It is very straightforward language. It is not complex. It is not wordy. And yet, we often try to make this a very muddled verse for us in our own lives. We often look for reasons to not bless. We often look for reasons to curse our enemies. We, we can find loopholes in this wording, right? We can say, well, it's referring to this context. Or, well, but if you really knew my situation, you would understand how what I'm going through. You would understand the pain I'm in. You would, you would be on my side if you just knew what I was thinking, what I was feeling, what had happened to me. But I love this first verse that Paul starts with. It's not complex. It is straightforward. It is simple. It puts us in an uncomfortable place because I think that is what the gospel does. It takes the heart of stone and makes it into flesh. The heart of stone is not going to do these things. The heart of stone is not about blessing those who are their enemies. And so since we're still in this broken flesh, we still have that tendency to want to be the heart of stone. And so that's why I love this verse so much in that sense of God is calling us right off the bat through the Apostle Paul to know that this is how we are to live as Christians. All of us at one point or another, with my joking aside, have had conversations, have had conflicts with people we would call our enemies. 
Did you bless them? Or did you curse them? I have fallen short of this myself. There's not a person I think in this room who hasn't fallen short of this. But we want to see that doing so causes tremendous differences in our lives and relations to the world around us. And as Paul writes, it leads to a place where thanksgiving flows not only out of us, but out of those around us as well. And so again, I, I want to take out the boogeyman in this verse. It's really easy to, to think of a boogeyman when it says, hate your enemy, right? We automatically think in a militaristic sense. You got the guy over there with the gun. You got the terrorist. You got whoever it is in your mind, right? That's not really connected to you. They're far off. They're not in your life. They're not, they're not bothering you, right? They're not a real enemy. You're like, yeah, of course I know how to love those guys. That's easy. But we want to remind ourselves, this is dealing with the person that is in our house, that's in our neighbor, right? That is our coworker, our boss, whoever it might be. There's always someone in our lives that potentially is going to do wrong to us, to treat us with evil, and they're not within the church. And so I want us to focus on that, that this is, has real-world implications for us, and we have to try to not get distance between us and these verses by saying, oh, it's only when I deal with the boogeyman, the really bad guy, that I have to worry about these things. And so when we see this, we want to remind ourselves that this is a direct command from Christ himself. In Luke 6, 27 through 28, Christ says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. I think the writing of Paul is scripture. I think it's God-inspired. But it should cause us to have double pause and think truly about what Paul is saying when he's directly echoing the words of Christ. This is something that Christ spoke and was so important he put it in the writings of the gospel and the epistle letters to us. It is a vital truth as Christians we have to hold to. Bless those who persecute you. Bless your enemies. That's hard this morning. That is very hard for us. And we're called to do it by not only Christ, but Paul. But notice the second part. This is, I think, where we struggle more. Bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse them. I don't think anybody this week has gotten a physical fight with their enemy this week. Unless you have, then you can, we can talk after and I can uh, talk to you about that. But I don't think any of you have gotten in a fight with your enemies lately. Right? Most likely it's in a setting that is a workplace or it's a neighbor. It's in a civil sense, right? Where they have said words that have cut you. They've slandered against you in places and things like that. But notice that Paul just doesn't leave it at bless them. He says not to what? Curse them. Do we struggle with cursing people? Can you believe what so-and-so did that? So-and-so? Right? Listen to the words here from uh, John MacArthur about cursing our enemies. Because the general tone of religious freedom in modern Western society, physical or political persecution for one's Christian faith is rare. Our temptations to curse are more likely to be in reaction to hostility that does us no life-threatening harm, and it causes, but it causes us inconvenience or embarrassment. We're quick to curse people. We get in our group of friends, we like to curse people. We get with our spouse, right, and we slander other people. Um, we get in behind closed doors with other co-workers and we say, can you believe that? Careful, right? That's why I love this verse, because it's, because it's not simply just doing away the fact that we have enemies. 
It's calling us to be mindful. In fact, you will have enemies. You will have struggles. But do not fall into cursing them. Do not fall into hating them, right? Bless them in that sense, right? It's easy to curse our enemies and safety of our homes and hearts and feel justified in doing so because we were wronged, right? It goes back to the original lie. Did God really say, right? Did God really say that? We want to be careful as we think through that. 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. This is a great verse in general, right? In the sense of uh, rejoicing with those who rejoice. It's, we should as a church rejoice with one another. Um, but the context doesn't just let us transition quickly to the church, right? It doesn't let us escape rejoicing with those who are outside the church. That can be really hard when you deal with non-believers. It is hard to rejoice with those who are outside the Christian context. Think about rejoicing when it comes at your expense, a coworker gets a promotion that you've been working really hard for, and they get the job, right? And, they, and you know they're not a good person. You know they've done things cut corners. You know that they have done everything that they can uh, to get that promotion. They took, you know, money at all, win at all costs kind of mentality, right? Now, granted, this is not saying, and I'm not saying, just clarify, we don't rejoice in sin, but we rejoice with good things that happen to people. That is a heart of thanksgiving when you can rejoice for people that it comes at your own cost. We do this really easy with our own children, right? I sacrifice for Christmas with a Christmas coming up, right? It's a joy for me to sacrifice my money that I've worked hard for to watch them open gifts. But how often do we do that with people outside our family, with outside of our church? How often do you rejoice with non-believers? It's not easy, right? Think about when you're in the workplace, when you're in the real world in that sense, how often you hear people grumble and complain, I can't believe they got that promotion. They're an idiot. Right? They have no clue what they're doing. It's actually hard to rejoice in the, in the world with broken people. We don't like to do it. We'd rather com- complain and grumble. But think about the thanksgiving that that shows, number one, in your heart. But two, the ramifications that has for those around you. That is a stark difference when somebody gets promoted and you're able to rejoice for them. Like, hey, I'm so happy that now you can provide more for your family. It leads to thanksgiving that they see that's authentic and genuine and not merely based on association. But notice there the the second part. Weep with those who weep. Rejoicing is hard with the enemy. How much harder is it to weep with the enemy? We live in a broken, broken world, and most of the people you interact with, their weeping is a result of their direct choices and sin. And so there's a time and a place to say, you know, this brokenness won't happen and wouldn't happen if you would not do these broken things, these sinful desires, these sinful choices you make. But do we have a place to have grace and humility and say to someone, I'm sorry you're struggling. I'm sorry that this brokenness has occurred. I'm sorry this this unity, this heartbreak, whatever this loss has happened in your life, and I genuinely feel for you. Do we have that capacity within us? I think when it comes to weeping, we have to be reminded of who it is that we serve. We serve the God of compassion. In James 5.11 it says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have heard, seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
it is so easy for us to quickly forget that God is a God of compassion for all. We want God to be compassionate and merciful in our lives, right? But we so often do not want to do that with anyone else who's an enemy of ours, who has slandered us, who has offended us. We don't want to be compassionate with them in that regard. But James and Paul here is reminding us to be compassionate people as Christ is compassionate with you. It is not enough simply to feel sorry. It is, is more the sense of sympathy, right? It is actually getting in the moment with that person and being able to speak the gospel to them. And one of the best ways to do that is by being mournful when they are mournful, by being compassionate. And partly, I, remember, I think we were called to be rejoicing with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. It's because our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood. That person is not actually your enemy. The enemy is the thoughts in their mind, the brokenness of sin that's held, holding them captive. And we have, I think everyone in this room can point to moments in their life where they've seen brokenness, they've seen weeping, they've seen nights of sorrow change a person. God used that to bring them forth into the truth of repentance. And so what a great testimony of Thanksgiving we can give if we are the type of people who constantly people know, hey, they actually care about me. They actually do feel for me. They rejoice when I got that promotion. They were there for me when I lost my job and I wasn't sure I was going to provide for my family. Do we see that the person that is our enemy is more than just that? Do we see the battle of the mind going on? Do we see the fight that weighs for all eternity? What an opportunity to share the gospel when we mourn with those who mourn. Verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Live in harmony with those around us. Remind yourself that we are not partial as Christians. It is hard to not be partial. We are all partial in a sense. We all discriminate, right? Um, If we were all going to go out together as one big group today and I said, we're all going to McDonald's, some of you would be excited, especially if you're under 12. Some of you would not be so excited as you would think, McDonald's, really? That's not my, right? So we all discriminate in a sense in, in, the, in our lives from day to day in terms of we have to and it's good. I'm not saying it's wrong. But we want to be mindful of the fact that we sometimes discriminate in ways that are not good. And we want to be impartial and not partial. So often we can be influenced by wealth, status, and personal preference, Right? Um, it's hard as a church, in your small church, if we had a rich family coming and they started giving lots of money, it could be potentially hard for us not to try to cater to them, right? Um, those are lots of things that can happen. It's hard in your life if you have rich family not to kind of feel that they have more sway over you than other family members and status and so forth. But with personal preference, we want to remind ourselves that um, all three of these, wealth, status, personal preference, we're thankful that God does not bow to those. God is not partial. I am unimpressive, and yet he loves me. You are unimpressive, and yet he loves me. You. We have warnings over and over again throughout the whole New Testament of this idea. Do not show favor, right? And specifically in James, we have a clear command within church. Do not show partiality. There was a documentary on the the church called Hillsong, which was in New York, and it had a lot of famous celebrities coming to their church. 
And one of the downfalls I think led to that church imploding was they would have those people come in, they had reserved seating, they had special seating, you couldn't talk to them, you couldn't, like it was a big deal that these famous people were coming to their church. We have to be careful that we don't fall into that line of thinking within ourselves. There are people that are your enemies that you might respect, that you might feel like I can put up with them because they help me get somewhere. They're helping me achieve what I need. And then there's those people that they don't do you anything. They're not helping you anyway. In fact, they're, de- they're de- taking away from your ability to advance, your ability to move up the corporate ladder or be, have a more peaceful life. Are we showing partiality, right? Live in harmony with one another. If I were to ask your neighbors, are you a person of harmony or are you a person of disharmony? Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Um, again, I, I think we like to think of this as um, it's easy to create the boogeyman impression, right? The lowly, we, we automatically jump to the homeless. We automatically jump to people that are way out there on the fringe. And we say, yeah, I know I need to spend more time with the homeless and the orphans. Um, I'm just not comfortable, right? But I want to point out there are lots of lowly people in your life around you that need someone to show them love, mercy, and grace. But we, the question is, are we doing it? Or do we find ourselves to be important? Are you an important person within your mind? Right? Are you haughty? Continue that verse. Never be wise in your own sight. If people wrote honestly what they thought about you, would it line up with how you view yourself? There is wisdom in actually asking that question on a regular basis. In Proverbs it says, it is better to receive a slap from a friend than a kiss from an enemy. But we often don't live our lives like that. We're not often willing to have those conversations with those we love to see how we come across to those who are outside the faith. All right, I love that verse. Never be wise in your own sight. We often tend to think we're in good standing. We're in a good place. But how often do we think to ask, hey, do I come across as arrogant? Do I come across as insincere? Do I come across as always immature? I'm a very loud, boisterous personality, and I've had many humbling moments where people are like, I don't think you take anything seriously. And I'm like, ouch, that's that's really hurtful, right? Because I I like to think I'm a serious person, but that's not what I'm conveying. That's not what I'm uh, actually doing with my actions. And so certainly there are things in here that we want to make sure in our own life that we are working through, right? 16 is that call. Live in harmony with one another. If I ask people, do you live in harmony with them, right? Do you prefer to associate with certain people and you disdain the lowly, right? Do you think you're pretty impressive, pretty important in your own life? Careful. It's how you lead to being an immature person, how you lead to be a person who's called a fool. So test yourself, lest you be proven wrong. That's the beauty of the church. Is it's, a, it's a place where we can have those honest conversations. You can go to your brother and say, hey, I just want you to know I love you, but this is how this is coming across. Or, hey, I love you, but this is a problem. Are we willing to accept it? Are we willing to become lowly? Right? So we can reach out to those who are outside the church, and they will say good things about us. I, I think of God's good grace because when I first came the wrestling coach, I was told by my principal, I'm not going to train you how to do your job. I was told by athletics, we're not going to train you how to do your job. So I just kind of did my thing, right? And I didn't know any better. 
but I would get an email from the secretary in the administrative office saying, hey, this is not how we do stuff. And I can look back and I read them and they were not very gracious emails. Like, I know what I'm supposed to do. This isn't it, thanks, right? Um, and years later, I'm like, oh yeah, she was 100% right. I, I was supposed to do this and I didn't know that. Um, but I will say that one of the most humbling moments for me was I thought there was no reconciling that relationship because I just thought it was so broken because it was constantly backfighting and lots of mistakes being made on my part and her part and just a lot of pride getting in the way. But she told our new AD when he came into business, he, the AD sent me down and said, listen, I know there's been some problems here, he said, but she will say you've always at least treated her with respect and truthfulness. And that was embarrassing because I thought, well, it should be more than that, right? Because I'm professing to be this believer. But I was thankful for at least to God that that was partly what was being conveyed. And so when you think about your life, right, what are the opinions of other people outside of this church body? Do they have good opinions of you? Would they say you're good and you're wise, right, that you care or that you're an unharmless person, person, that life around you is constantly chaotic because of your reactions and your emotions? Something to think about. And then lastly, one last thing when we think about relationship with other. Galatians 3.28 says what? There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. Even though I am an elder, right, and there's a position of authority and power there, I am no more better than you. I am no more less than you. We are all equal in Christ. We're all brothers and sisters, co-heirs for all eternity to who he is. What a wonderful way to show thanksgiving by not being a person of chaos. What a wonderful way for people outside the church to say, thank God my neighbor's a Christian because I know at least I'm going to have a harmonious relationship with them. Thank God the person in the cubicle next to me is a Christian because I know they're going to treat me rightly and not think they're better than me when I make mistakes or I do wrong things. 14, or excuse me, not 14, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Never repay evil for evil. This is the radical truth of Christianity. Right now there's a war in the Middle East going on because it is the doctrine of demons that say you repay evil with evil. We are committed to not repaying evil with evil. We are committed to loving our enemies. And that is hard and that is complex. And I think Paul is going to give us a little more explanation of what that looks like as we go through the verses. But at the very least, we are called not to repay evil for evil. There's a reason the Old Testament says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Right? In the civil sense, we don't take vengeance into our own hands. We love vengeance stories, though, right? Think about the Western movie. What is the Western movie about? It's about that dude taking vengeance into his hands and making sure those people pay. We love vengeance stories. Careful, right, that you don't let vengeance and wrath and bitterness store up in your heart. But notice that, right? Never pay you for evil because we tend to go too far. That's why the Old Testament has that saying, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Because God knows our response is not to just go an eye for an eye, but to go an eye for a body, right? To go for $10,000 worth of damage versus the 1000 that actually occurred. We want more. We're not satisfied with what is right and good in that sense. So repay no one evil for evil. We're called not to do it. It's abhorrent. When we do, and we should stop, we should shudder in our own lives 
when we do those moments and we should be quick to ask for forgiveness when we repay evil for evil. But give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Again, that is hard to do in a broken world. We, we don't like giving honor to what is good sometimes, right? It doesn't maybe fit our political agenda. Um, if you've been following the news, Hillary Clinton posted this uh, response to the Middle East. And it's been very funny because a lot of people are saying, you just have to ignore the fact that it's Hillary Clinton because it's a really great understanding of the conflict in the Middle East. She, and she does a really good job explaining that, right? But sometimes we don't like it when our enemies say truths, right? We want the truth only to be on our camp. The other side has no truth. Careful that we don't come into that mindset, right? Honor what is honorable in the sight of all. If someone says something that is good, if somebody says something that is true, we should applaud that. So often we have a hard time doing that. And this is what God's calling us to repay no one evil for you, but give honor to what is honorable in the sight of all. Do what is right as it depends on you. Verse 18, this is where that little bit of nuance I think Paul gives us freedom to come. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Are there times that peace may not be possible? No. There are times that peace is not always possible. But for the Christian, in terms of defi- defending their, their family, their community, their nation, that is always the goal, though. Even after the blood has been spilled, spilled the goal is always to go back to, now let's have peace. Now let's have peace. Now let's have peace. Paul is giving us that permission to, I think, to honestly defend ourselves, protect ourselves, right? Not that you are to be taken advantage of, but to be careful that you don't do vengeance, that you don't seek to do evil for evil, that you understand the goal whenever you have been insulted, slighted, or persecuted is to seek peace with that person, to lead them to a faith with Christ, to be a person who is renewed in the spirit, in their mind, and their body. So if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Again, can your neighbor say that you are a constant person of peace, that you seek to bring peace in your workspace and how you interact with people, how you talk about people? Were you someone that stirs up strife, stirs up discontent? Things that will lead to a life of not thankfulness, but bitterness. 19 to me is one of the scariest verses in the New Testament. Read it with me. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This should terrify you because if you take vengeance in your own hands, who are you taking vengeance from? God, I have a simple suggestion. You should not steal things that belong to God. I love this verse because it speaks so directly to me. It convicts me. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. It is easy to scheme and plot, isn't it? Oh, I'm going to get them here. I'm going to wait till this person. I'm going to go get this person. They don't know that I know this person. This person is going to come down on them so hard. Yeah, they messed the wrong person today, let me tell you. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay the Lord. My wife and I, we have a, a family motto. It's not a great family motto, but I'm very proud of this motto. The motto is, it's better to be taken advantage of than take advantage. 
So often we don't like that as Christians. That's why my wife and I have that saying. We say it back and forth to each other because there's times we've been taken advantage of and it's frustrating and it's hurtful. And I have been wronged. I didn't do anything. Deserve it. But be careful, beloved. Never avenge yourselves. That is God's domain you're walking into. That is his area that you're saying, hey, you don't know what you're doing. I'll take over. Thank you. Careful, right? That is a warning to us from God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not think yourself so wise that you can take vengeance from God. And then he goes and flips it, right? He says, vengeance is God, but here's what you're to do. So we think of Jonathan Edwards, right? Hands in the Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Terrifying place to be, which all sinners will end up if they do not repent. But Jesus says, that's what God's going to do. Or excuse me, Paul says, here's what you're going to do. Verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And we don't like that at all. Right? That goes back to that very first verse we read. Bless your enemy, do not curse them. You don't like having to serve and love people who aren't worthy. We hate that. They're not worthy of it. Why do I have to go out of my way to let that person know that I care? I'm thankful for the fact they're in my life. It's because it's a reminder of where we are, where, who we stand before. Again, I think one of the things that will always amaze us for all eternity is we, as we learn the depths of God will be how gracious and merciful he was with us because of who he is. By doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. There's two, there's two options here, and I think they're both the right answer. Either A, you're going to convict them, and they will turn and believe in Christ, right, by the burning coals of your goodness. Or B, they will be so shamed, they will go deeper into their sin because of that. Both, I think, are the valid options. I don't think they're in contradiction to one another. I think both God uses either to heap judgment on that person, as he's saying, vengeance is mine, or to bring them to salvation. It's one of the reasons we're called not to be vengeful. Your actions might actually lead them to be removed from God's wrath to create a relationship of restoration and beauty that you never thought possible. But the second you take vengeance into your hands, you're taking away your ability to pour hot coals on their head to make them feel shameful, to make them feel repentant. And if they continue down the path of sin, God says, don't worry, vengeance is mine. I will take care of it. I think as you grow older, you're able to see this play out in people's lives. A small sin that you've warned people of that they refuse to turn away from before they know it is a mountain in their life and it's wrecked so much of what they've accomplished, so much of what they've done with their family. It's destroyed. And so as Christians, we're called to the contrary, right? Meaning, remind yourselves, this is not easy. Love your enemy. Feed them. Thirsty. By doing so. We get vengeance through love of our enemy. God ultimately was the one who brings the sword. What a powerful place to be for the person who turns away from sin into the arms of Jesus because you were kind, because you were compassionate, because you were loving towards them. No greater testimony. Some of us in this room might even, that might be our own testimony this morning. You might be a Christian because someone did that for you today. And lastly, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He summarizes the whole idea for us. It's quick and easy to go into evil. It is not a problem for us to fall into that. 
but overcome evil with good. Overcome what is wicked and desperate with love and grace and mercy. Doing so will lead to life of thanksgiving. What a joyous place you will be if you think about when we stand for Jesus, if you can say, God, I did not give in to evil. God, and I put bread on my enemy's table. God, I am clean before you in that sense because you have changed my heart of stone into a heart of flesh because of your great love for me, because of your allowing somebody who is so wicked, somebody who is so fleshy to be born into your kingdom, to be made new into the likeness of your son. This Thanksgiving season, as we come into Thanksgiving itself, are you someone who is looking to put heaping coals of love on your enemies? Are you looking to let God be the author of vengeance, to be at peace and to pursue peace with all around you? Or are you a chaotic, ungrateful person for what God has done in your life?